Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Alrighty, we are back. I hope you guys had a great weekend. For me, this has been a really busy week. So a lot of things have happened. I have a lot to talk about. And I'll go ahead and give you just a brief outline of what I'm going to be going over in this video. The first thing is we're looking at my portfolio here. This is, it's called passive income because the entire goal of this is to create a separate stream of income in addition to whatever income you currently have. And passive meaning it doesn't take hardly any upkeep. I've created this portfolio and I'm using an investment strategy called dividend growth investing to accomplish it. I'm going to be just giving a quick update on that, see how it's going, see how the income is doing. And then I have a couple other things I want to hit on, a couple different news items. The first one is the Fed rate. This is something where if you're new to finance and you're getting into all these terms and, and you're doing your research and you're reading about it, you inevitably you'll come across the Fed rate. And this is a very difficult concept. At least for me, it was the first time that I was researching about this. Very difficult to wrap my head around it. But I've spent a lot of time looking into this. And uh, it's an important, especially now, because the Fed is meeting this week. This Wednesday, they'll come out. Jerome Powell will say if they're going to lower the Fed rate by 25 basis points. And I'm going to be talking about the implications of that, what that does with the stock market, what it shows about the economy overall, just my take on that. The next thing is Boeing. I know I've talked about Boeing a lot. I'm not going to be talking about the MCAS systems or the details of the crash or anything like that. I want to give an update on the fallout. What's going on as far as the entire fallout of this whole thing and where Boeing stands now, where I think their future lies. I'll be going over that as well. And then beyond that, we have a lot of questions to answer. A lot of people wrote in and you know, some people even left me voice messages and that type of thing. So I'll be responding to a lot of your guys' questions as well. So before jumping into any of this, there's something I got to mention first that I got to talk about for a minute. Let me go over to my YouTube page here. I think it was like four, maybe five days ago, we passed 20,000 subscribers here, which is awesome. That's a huge landmark. In fact, we're at like 21,000 now, gaining a lot of new people here. And I appreciate all of you. And I love hearing your, your feedback. It's a pretty cool thing. As YouTube, if you have any type of thing where you're creating content like this and you're gaining a lot of traction, right? I think it's fair to say this channel has gained some traction. It comes with a lot of awesome things. One of it is that uh, this channel in particular, I think, has a lot of really smart commenters. Like, I really like it. People have a lot of experience, a lot of good commenters out there. There's people that know a lot on a variety of different subjects better than I do. And so I learn a lot when I read through the comments. And I love that aspect of it. It also comes with, and I know, you know, any big YouTuber that's much larger than me has also talked about the different challenges that come with YouTube. And it's interesting, you know, there's sometimes there's trolls and things like that. That hasn't been such a big deal with me. Uh, but I had one thing that was very interesting. And this is another challenge that I think comes when you get to a certain size. I got an email from one of our subscribers here. And the email subject line is, someone is pretending to be you. Now, I'll be honest. When I read that subject line, I, I was a Friday morning. I was at work and I just read the subject line. And I, someone pretending to be me. My initial thought was, oh, there's someone creating a similar channel where they, you know, they use the same like title format for their episodes and the same thumbnails, that type of thing, right? Big deal. Uh, no, 
This is not somebody imitating my channel. This is someone quite literally pretending to be me. This email, let me read it. It says, hey, Joseph, just a heads up to maybe throw out a PSA in your next video. The email is the same as yours, except it swaps the O and the N in your last name. I've attached the conversation below. I was a bit groggy from a late night, so I didn't really pay much mind. Gotta say, it was pretty convincing, especially the subject line. The person is clearly a fan of yours. The second email was less convincing, and that's when I looked closer. Anyways, I suppose you should be flattered. Keep up the great work. Best, Paul. Uh, Thank you, Paul, for alerting me to this. I want to go ahead and, and show you guys the initial email that this guy sent out. Or girl, I don't know who it is. Let me bring it up here. So this email is not from me. This person, whoever it is, is pretending to be me. The email, the subject line is welcome back everyone. And that's something I commonly start my videos with. Already it's building some familiarity there. And then you can see the name is Joseph Carlson. That's my name. And the email address, if I zoom in on that for people listening, the email address is josephcarlsnowshow at gmail.com. My email address is three words. My first name, my last name, followed by the word show at gmail.com. My email address is not josephcarlsnowshow at gmail.com. So this person is not me. I don't know who this is. But let me go ahead and read the initial email this person sent out. It says, I just want to take this time out to say thank you very much for the very supportive comments you post out there, for liking and staying subscribed to my channel. You guys have been awesome. I still have many more amazing stuffs for you all. In more interesting news, I would be sharing a really simple way to make at least 1% of your investment as daily profits. Apparently, this has proven to work perfectly, and it could actually become your biggest investment ever. I'm yet to post a review on YouTube because I want to share this with my subscribers for now. If you are pretty excited about this and willing to learn, feel free to respond. I would explain in details if you would like. All right. Being told that this is from somebody else, it's a a fake phishing scam email being sent out. It's easy to pick out the grammatical errors and, you know, it it becomes apparent that it's false. But if you're just receiving this thinking it's from me, I could see how it's a little bit convincing that you might believe it after just reading that. Of course, this subscriber, we have really smart subscribers here, like I said, and they weeded this out right away. There's red flags and they checked the email address, saw that there was just a simple change in lettering there that it's not from me and then alerted me to it. So I appreciate that. I just want to mention a couple things about this. The first thing is I'm never going to randomly email you guys. So if you receive a random email from me, just double check the email address, make sure it's actually from me. The only time that I'm ever actually going to email you is if I'm replying to an email that you sent in. So if I actually just randomly email you, just be wary, double check, make sure it's actually from me. I'll probably actually tell you guys on YouTube if I'm ever going to do that. Uh, That's the first thing. The next thing is if you receive an email like this, obviously use Gmail's little report button there and report this as spam or scam or whatever the options are there. And if enough people, if a handful of people report it, it'll just get blacklisted. I appreciate if you guys did that as well. And let me know if this type of thing continues. I don't think a lot of people receive this. Maybe a few people that comment on my videos because I don't think this person has access to a lot of your guys' emails. Anyway, I thought I'd just throw this out. I'm flattered that this person wants to be me, but unfortunately they're doing something that is illegal and scummy and I don't like that part of it. So I also think this would be a good time to plug my social media here. I have a Twitter that I'm active on. I have an Instagram that I'm 
semi-active on. I could post more on this, but I check all the messages, all the comments. Either of these are open to message. You can message me on Twitter. I don't need to be following you. Anyone can message me on it and you can message me on Instagram. I get a lot of people messaging me on this. So if you want to contact me that way, you're free to. I probably get at least five to 10 messages a day on this. And that's where I get most of the questions for the show and that type of thing. Feel free to contact me there. You can also write me in with email. Just be aware. I'll reply to you. I'm not going to randomly email you. Anyway, I'll move on from that. First, let me start by telling you about some changes I made to this portfolio. I have not changed any of the holdings. I haven't bought or sold anything. But if I scroll down here, what I have are these two different numbers. My actual allocation, which means how much of my money percentage-wise is in each of these pies, and then the target allocation. I've changed that around a little bit. So if I go to actual and target here, it reorganizes them. Bonds and real estate are each set to 20%. And then I have healthcare at 13, finance at 12, utilities at 11. Not drastic changes, but some changes there. I bumped up healthcare, I bumped down finance a little bit, and I, I bumped down utilities a little bit. The reason I did that is if you notice, healthcare is one of my only sectors besides the little bit I have in energy. Healthcare is one of the only ones that I have that's in the red. And a lot of the companies in my healthcare pie, I'll click into it here. A lot of my companies have been pretty beat up here. So we have AbbVie, we have Amgen. Um, these companies have not been doing well. United Health Group hasn't been doing well. And Johnson Johnson has also been beat up by recent news as well. Now, a lot of it, it might be somewhat deserved. But I think that these are all good companies that will recover. And so I'm bumping up the allocation while they're beat up and they're down, where I think I'm getting better value and I'm going to be putting future funds into that. I'm not selling any of my other funds to fund this. Just future deposits will flow into healthcare, especially Johnson & Johnson. And I'm going to do that until I think that they're back up to the valuation they should be. So sometimes I do change around allocation like that. I don't think that this is timing the market or or doing specific bets or anything like that. This is just looking at sectors that I think have been a little bit beat up, sometimes unfairly, and they offer a little bit better value at the time and putting a little bit more money there. Not any drastic changes that way. I don't make really any big changes in my portfolio. I just change around these percentages a little bit. On that note, if you're looking at this and you're thinking, gosh, I wish I knew it was in his telecom pie or which was in his industrials one. I wish you would click into that. I could go through and click into all of these, but it's kind of pointless because in the description of this video that you're watching, there's a link to this portfolio. You can click into that link and then you can click into each pie and see exactly the holdings I have, see exactly the target allocation of all of them. It won't show you the gains and losses I personally have, but it will show you my entire portfolio. So if you want to follow that, I just put the new updated one in the description. You can follow that and see all my target allocation and all my current holdings. It's just in the description of this video. Now, I had another question. I forgot who asked this, so I'm not going to post the question up. But it's one of the users that asked, what determines my allocation here? There's one overriding way that I determine these exact allocations. And that is the overall yield of my portfolio. The S&P 500, this is Seeking Alpha, I'm looking at SPY, which tracks the S&P 500. It has a dividend yield of 1.79%. So it's, it's typically right under 2%. That's where the dividend yield is of just that index, the S&P 500, which is a pretty general one people use to just track the, the broader equity market. Just under 2%. If my portfolio, a dividend growth portfolio, is yielding the same as the S&P 500, which has all sorts of different stocks mixed in, and actually has a lot of just pure growth plays in it. If it tracks the same, I don't think I'm really doing much to distinguish my portfolio away from that. What I like to do is hit a target that's about 
two times what the current market is. So the S&P 500 is like 1.9. I like to get my portfolio to have an overall yield of around 4%. So if I look at this, I go to the research tab here, my pies and then passive income. You can see the dividend yield is 3.8%. At one point I had it upwards of 4.3% when I had a lot more targeted to real estate. I decided that's a little high. I want to take that down a little bit. 4% is right around where I think is the best place to hit. Right around 4%, I think you can get a good yield while still having a lot of growth. But if I go back to the allocation here, a lot of this is determined by hitting that 4% yield. Because if I went and I made tech and industrials the highest percentage in my portfolio, the yield would drop down substantially. It'd be under 3%, be maybe in the mid 2%. So again, you can look at this in the description. I have a link that will show you all the different holdings in this, but that's an easy way to check on it and to keep up with the changes I'm making. Going into the actual income, if we look at the one week here, this has been a pretty slow week as far as dividends earned. $13, 14 bucks in dividends, not a whole lot there. If I look at the month view, this will give you a better picture of what it typically is. $140 for the month. For the past 30 days, I've earned $140 in dividends. So one week earning $14 is a little bit lower than typical. This isn't always just me putting in more money into my portfolio either. If I go over to my emails here, this is where I get alerted where there's dividend changes from Seeking Alpha. There's two companies. Union Pacific, this is one of my holdings. It just announced that it's increasing its dividend by 10.2%. That company just gave a 10% raise. Bank of America just announced that it's doing a 20% increase to its dividends. So I just got a 20% raise for all the shares I own on that. This income will continue to climb as long as companies continue to raise their dividend, to grow their dividend over time, as long as I keep contributing and reinvesting dividends. Now, if I want to go look at just the past week, we can take a look at that real quick. Since the 24th, here's the activity page of M1 Finance. Um, you can view this type of stuff on any broker. So they'll show you the different activity that's happened in your brokerage. But this is what's happened with my account. So on the 24th, I got paid 89 cents from Cisco. I also got paid a buck 26 from Comcast. I did three buys. This is all from dividends. Again, Johnson & Johnson was $34 was purchased and Merck $2, Pfizer $5. Not huge dollar amounts, $42 overall, but that's all dividend money. That's money I'm being paid from other companies and reinvesting back into these ones that I think are a better value right now. That's happening in the background. This is totally passive. Disney paid $3.15 on the 25th. Uh, Medtronic paid $2.92. And New Residential paid $30.13. This is one of the high yielder companies. It's a REIT, pays really heavy dividends, 30 bucks from that one. And you can see up here, I have $36 sitting in cash. That's gonna be invested next time the trading window happens when the market's open. This cycle just keeps happening. These companies just keep paying dividends. Those dividends get reinvested back into other companies that are undervalued. And that just is going to continue to happen. So I didn't want to spend too much time on this. I want to go ahead and jump into the news now. I have a lot of thoughts on this. Okay, so the first news item is about the Fed rate. I know a lot of people know exactly what this is. They've read everything about it. A lot of people are still confused of what this Fed rate is. The Federal Reserve has a few different tools of how they manipulate the economy. They can do quantitative easing and buying of assets and selling them. And, and the biggest one, arguably the biggest tool they have in order to stimulate the economy or to, to tamp down on inflation is the Fed rate. When they increase the Fed rate, makes it more difficult for banks to loan. Uh, I talked about this before when I, I mentioned that it's not crazy to say that sometimes money is cheap, sometimes money is expensive. If you don't know anything about finance, that might sound absurd to say, but it's true. 
Just like the example, if you go to a bank and you want to get a loan for a house, uh, the interest rate that you get largely determines whether you can even afford that home or not. If you get a really low interest rate, your payments are so low, you can afford it. The interest rate's really high. The payments are high enough that you probably can't afford it. It'll eat up too much of your discretionary income. So money is either cheap or expensive. Now, what lowering the Fed rate does, which they say they probably are going to be doing this Wednesday, is that makes money cheaper. All around the board, it gets spread out through all different investments, and it just makes things cheaper. And what that does is it stimulates the economy. So most people will look at this, the lowering of the Fed rate, and most investors will say, this is a positive thing. We're going to put poor money in. This is a positive thing that the Fed is lowering the rate. There's just a lot more to consider than that. Um, I have mixed feelings on this, and if you study a little bit more, you might have mixed feelings on it as well, because the only reason that the Fed really ever lowers the rates is because it's determining that the U.S. economy needs lower rates, meaning the U.S. economy is slowing down. So the thing that the Fed is doing is good for stocks. The underlying reason of why they're doing it is bad for stocks. And that's what I'm going to look at here. Diving a little bit deeper into this Fed rate, I want to turn to one of my favorite investors, Howard Marks. I've talked about this guy many times before on this channel. He's worth, I think, over $2 billion. He's a co-founder of the hedge fund Oak Tree. And that's the website I'm on right now. So he comes out with these memos, which he writes himself. And they're just these insights into current things that he believes about the market, about different political things. And I think it's all very interesting to read. So I recommend going and checking out some of these if you're interested in this type of stuff. But I'll go ahead and summarize just a part of this latest memo. It's specifically about the Fed rate. And he gives kind of a pros and cons list of it. If I go down to here, he says, are low interest rates a good thing? And he lists off a couple of the benefits of having low interest rates. One of them, he says, low interest rates encourage spending on part of the consumer. Low rates reduce the cost of borrowing, just like the example I gave with a home. Lifting demand for things that are often bought on time or leased, like cars, homes, and appliances. Further, low rates translate into lower monthly payments on floating rate mortgages, leaving consumers more disposable income to spend. So there's some benefits of having low rates. He lists off a few others here. I'll go through a couple. He says, increased demands for goods and services lead to increased hiring, reduced unemployment, and a tighter labor market, and thus to wage inflation. Rising wages encourage consumer spending by putting more money into wage earners' pockets and improving their mood. Uh, and then he names off a couple other things. Low rates on savings and fixed income investments drive investors to accept increased risk in order to pursue decent returns in a low-return world. Finally, rate cuts are taken as a predictor of further rate cuts, implying more of all of the above. When they're moving in a positive direction, the things described above contribute to the appearance of a virtuous cycle. So this is one of the things where just announcing that you're going to be doing a rate cut is good for the economy because just the announcement of it makes people believe all these good things are going to happen. And so they act as if all these things are going to happen somewhat like a placebo effect. And he believes that that is a factor. So we talked about some of the benefits of low interest rates. I want to go through and just name off a couple of the downside of having low interest rates. And these like a domino effect. You just follow one through another. The first thing is low rates stimulate the economy, which that's, I mean, a lot of people, that's just a good thing. But if that happens too much, the worry is that it will cause inflation. Inflation is when money becomes less valuable because there's so much of it going around. And it goes on. Too much inflation imposes a hardship on people living on fixed incomes since their costs increase rapidly while their incomes don't. Also, 
low-income households typically don't have the means to hedge against inflation that high-income ones do, such as through investments in equity and real estate. So if you have a lot of your net worth tied up in investments, like companies that you have equity in and real estate, even if there's inflation, those companies are just going to charge more for their goods. Real estate are just going to charge more rent to their tenants. So they have a way to hedge against inflation. But people that are poor, that don't that don't have any investments, all their money's just in their bank account, they're going to get left behind. So they're the people that kind of get screwed over in this situation. Now, this keeps going. Another one, it says, when low rates penalize savers by reducing returns available on safe investments like cash, money market funds, savings accounts, treasury securities, and high-grade bonds, savers' alternatives to accepting lower incomes is to assume increased risk in the pursuit of higher returns they used to earn safely. So if all the things that typically were earning you a decent return, like bonds and savings accounts, the Fed rate lowers all of that. So all the bonds, they get a lower rate. So bonds typically don't do well when the Fed is lowering interest rates. And what do people do? They look for something that's giving them a higher return. It says, thus, low rates can lead to investment in undeserving companies and shaky securities, encouraging the use of excessive leverage and create asset bubbles that eventually can burst. Sounds a little scary. So he's saying that since people can't find yield anywhere else in any kind of investments that's safe, what they do is they start to pile money, seeking yield in less safe investments, causing those investments to become overvalued to the point where they can become a problem. Finally, but very importantly, when interest rates are low, central banks don't have at their disposal as much of their best tool for stimulating economies, their ability to cut rates. That is the final point here. When the central bank is lowering the interest rate, they're already stimulating the economy, right? And we're not in a recession right now. The main way that we get out of recessions, one of the biggest tools we have is lowering the interest rate. So what do I think about all of this, the Fed lowering interest rates? My outlook on it is mostly negative. I know that, I mean, it's already temporarily brought up the prices of equities, made it so more people put money in the stock market, and it will continue to do that. But the overall reason that the Fed would lower interest rates, the fundamental reason is because the economy is slowing. And for a long-term investor, most of these holdings I have are very long-term. I'm not looking for just the next year or so. For a long-term investor, I view this as mostly a negative thing, that our economy is slowing down. I like it more when the economy is so hot that the Fed's having to increase interest rates to just slow down the inflation because the economy is doing so well. But we're doing the reverse of that. It's slowing down and the Fed is trying to stimulate the economy. I don't think that that's a positive thing personally. I know a lot of people have different uh, opinions on this. So I'm interested to know your guys' thoughts on this. So leave some comments and let me know what you think on it. Okay, so the next thing I want to talk about here is Boeing. Give an update on what's going on with this company. But first of all, I've been getting roasted in the comment section of one of my videos. And it's episode three, uh, the third episode I did. This was a few weeks before the second airplane, the Ethiopian Airlines one crashed from Boeing. I did a video talking about Boeing as a company, analyzing it. And part of it, I say that Boeing has a five-year-long backlog of orders. And it's a type of company that can't even have a hiccup happen to it. In fact, I'll go ahead and play the actual clip I'm talking about here. What does the company do? What products does it sell? What type of things does it create? Are these things that are going to be relevant in five years? Is their business have high turnover? Do they have long contracts with clients? Are they like Boeing where, where they have so much of a backlog that they have five years of work already paid to them with down payments? This company has five years that there's not even a chance it can have a hiccup because they have so much of a backlog of airplanes to make. 
Okay, so that's the clip there. Obviously, Boeing has had a lot more than a hiccup. So some of the comments, no hiccup on Boeing, question mark. Ha ha ha. Uh, Nick Oledo says, no chance of Boeing having a hiccup. Oof. IG6Y says, I like the part where you say there's no chance that Boeing would have a hiccup. Smiley face. All right. First of all, how dare all of you point out when I'm wrong? Um, No, obviously uh, way wrong on that. And I think it highlights something important here. You can analyze companies. You can look at the data available to you and make judgments based on that. It's not always going to turn out correctly. Sometimes if you do fundamental valuation on companies, there's randomness in the world. I did not expect that Ethiopian Airlines would crash a few weeks later, killing hundreds of people. And that especially that it would be something that's almost entirely the fault of Boeing and the engineers and an error that they literally have not made in decades. So I did not expect that to happen, obviously. Now, having said that, let's go ahead and look at a couple of things here. If we go and look at a year-to-date graph of Boeing, there's a very small window of when you could invest in that company where you'd still be in the negative. And it'd have to be almost right after the start of the year. If you invested at the beginning of the year, you would still be in the green. That's pretty incredible to be in the green by 7 or 8% in a company that has pretty much been publicly proven to have made a huge error resulting in the deaths of hundreds of people. It shows you a little bit of the resilience of this company. Since the very height of where it was, the company has dropped down around 20%. So it's had a pretty drastic fall. I really wanted to go over this and look at the type of publicity that that Boeing is getting. A couple of the people affected by the second crash, Ethiopian Airlines crash, they met with Congress to share their thoughts on this. This does not look good for Boeing. I mean, deservedly so, but they share their testimony here. Doesn't look good for Boeing. One person I want to give a couple highlights of the, some of the things he shared is this man here, Mr. Naroj. Um, he had his wife killed, his six-year-old boy killed, his four-year-old daughter killed, and his nine-month-old daughter killed, and his mother-in-law killed in that one flight. And it, I'll go ahead and I'll just play a, a little bit of this. There's a couple clips in this video I want to share with you. My wife, Carol, was a dedicated homemaker and a full-time accountant who wanted to change the world through girl-child education in marginalized communities of Kenya. My six-year-old son, Ryan, was a super intelligent boy who was fascinated by the galaxy and aspired to be an astronaut. My four-year-old daughter, Kelly's singing delighted everyone. My nine-month-old daughter, Ruby, was bubbly and a joy in our family. And my mom-in-law, Anne, was a retired teacher of over 40 years who has shaped the world of young men and women through her teaching and counseling. I think about the last six minutes a lot. My wife and my mom-in-law knew they were going to die. They had to somehow comfort the children during those final moments, knowing they were all their last. I wish I was there with them. It never leaves me that my family's flesh is there in Ethiopia, mixed with the soil, the jet fuel, and pieces of the aircraft. Now, obviously, this person is a victim of what happened. Um, His entire family killed. I can't even imagine that. I mean, I have a family. Really, at this point, I don't think much would matter in your life. In fact, there's one statement he made. If I go over to an article here, one about him says, quote, my life has no meaning. And 
I think that that is completely how you'd fill in his situation. So he's up here and he's trying to illustrate to part of U.S. Congress of the gravity of what has happened, who he believes is responsible for this. And it turns out that he actually works in finance. He was sharing some things about Boeing that I thought that he must know a little bit about finance. Doing a little research, you can see on LinkedIn that he has been in finance for about 10 years and he works in investment management. And he has some thoughts on Boeing, specifically their share buyback practice. And uh, stock buybacks. Would you like to just comment on that a little bit since you didn't, you abbreviated your testimony uh, for oral purposes, which we appreciate, but would you like to uh, perhaps elaborate on that a little bit or at least make that point? Sure, Um, thank you. Um, Basically, when companies uh, repurchase their own stock, um, they try to send a message out there to the investors that uh, we are bullish about our own company we believe that our financial performance is, uh, is good. And uh, it seems that um, since the CEO, uh, Dennis Marlenberg, obviously before that they still had the uh, equity repurchase program going on, but since he took over, uh, the numbers, the dollar values of uh, the uh, repurchase of, of the stock uh, went up. Um, and, and I do believe it's um, in 2017 when uh, they started selling the 737 Maxes. Um, uh, their revenues um, uh, swelled. Their the revenues were growing and uh, earnings were growing as well. We have uh, a, a good amount of retained earnings. We can throw the money out there. Um, and uh, the, the stock price, uh, obviously, when you send those, uh, the signaling effect to the Wall Street, uh, the stock price will keep going because you know events, investors will keep buying the stock, and uh, the beneficiaries of this are actually the uh, executives because um, they benefit from equity compensation. Um, that is the exercise of uh, stock options. So he's drawing attention to what he thinks is bad business practice by Boeing, saying that the executives know they get a lot of their compensation. The huge majority of it isn't through their salary but it's through stock options and share buybacks are an easy way for companies to increase their valuation. And as a result, they can exercise those stock options and get really big payouts. He thinks that that's what's happening there. This is also another reason why I don't like comparing share buybacks to dividends. I think that they just function differently. There's a lot more nuance to it than what people try to make out of it. But that's one negative thing that he's drawing attention to. Another thing that he brings up is that Boeing never apologized to him. So the expectation is, you know, it's hard to trust um, the Boeing, you know, with their apologies, um, given that uh, they've not reached out to us. And uh, I do believe that they did that in the days leading up to the um, Paris air show, because it's for commercial reasons. I, I believe it's a publicity stunt that they just appeared on cameras to apologize to the families. So he's saying he thinks the apologies from Boeing are phony because Boeing will apologize to the families on TV, but then they won't apologize to the families in person. So he's saying it's a publicity stunt. Now, I mean, when a guy like this, when he has his entire family instantly wiped away in a crash like this, it'd be easy to assume that uh, he could be irrational and say hysterical claims. But when I listen to everything that he said, I don't disagree with any of it. I think he's been pretty accurate with everything that he said and it's all been very rational statements boeing has a lot working against it right now it has bad publicity like this from victims of this crash that uh puts a black eye on it 
The last quarter, the grounding of its most popular jet has cost it, here from the Wall Street Journal, $7 billion in grounding its best-selling jet. If I go down, we can look at a graph of this. You can see the profits of Boeing in every quarter, $2 billion, 2.4, That difference is staggering. So obviously this has not been good for Boeing. They're going to have to be paying out even more fees, more legal costs. They have a lot more obligations because of this as time goes on. And even with the damage done to its reputation, the publicity it's getting, this bad quarter already, this is expected to go on for quite a while. A lot of people are saying that these planes, the 737 Maxes, they won't even be in the air this year. It will go all the way to next year. As far as Boeing, where it stands right now, I think it's going to be quite a while until we see it return past where it previously was. I'm honestly surprised that the stock has only dropped 20%. I really think the reason that it hasn't dropped more is because these giant aerospace companies have such a wide moat. It's so difficult for another company to take this opportunity where Boeing has stumbled and to swoop in and take advantage of it. It's just really difficult to do. There's not a lot of companies out in the world that can even produce what Boeing's producing. So that has protected them from falling further than where they are. Okay, so let's get to some questions. The first one, this is pretty cool. So he wrote me a message, but he also left a voice message on Instagram. I didn't really realize you can do this. I'm not great with the social media, but I'll go ahead and play the audio from this. Hey, Joe, I just had a thought about your comparison between real estate and dividend investing. Um, I think one of the things that you, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on is the fact that with real estate, you can leverage your money a lot more than you can in dividend investing and therefore get a lot higher ROI because let's say you're putting a 20% down payment on a $300,000 house and you're subletting it uh, or you're, you know, renting it and you have that passive income. Of course, there's the level of maintenance. Um, I'd be interested to hear what you thought about rental income uh, in that regard, the fact that you can be leveraged and whether you think that's worth the work related to the, um, the, the, the higher profit margin. At least that's what I think. I think you'd have higher profit margins uh, putting that same amount of money that you do in your dividend fund in your real estate So he's basically saying, when comparing dividend investing to real estate, what do you think about the fact that you can leverage your money a lot more in real estate than you can in dividend investing? That's true. With dividend investing, you can use margin on an investment account, but that's a really risky thing to do. Uh, Increases your risk a lot. I don't think it's worth it, personally. I don't use any leverage on my portfolio. The companies that you're already purchasing, they're using leverage to run their business. So purchasing them with leverage, I think, is just really risky. Now, with real estate, you can use leverage a lot safer. So I could take the same capital in my portfolio, the $30,000, $40,000. You can take that amount. You can put it as a down payment on a rental property, and the bank will give me $300,000, Now. Obviously, I'm using a lot more leverage there, and I can make a higher return. I can simply make a higher return with it. So that's the benefit. Now, this isn't really a one-to-one comparison, though. He mentions this in the voice message, but you're taking on a second job when you buy real estate. When I buy stocks in my portfolio, I am not taking on a second job. I earn dividends literally as I sleep. I wake up in the morning, and there's new dividends in my account. I did nothing for them. I'm earning them as I sleep. Uh, Every once in a while, I might have to adjust the percentages a little bit of my holdings. If I wanted it to be 100% passive, I could just buy ETFs. So 
Dividend investing is 100% investing, 100% passive. Real estate is investing mixed with a second job. People that try to downplay that saying that it really isn't that much work, that's not my experience growing up in a family that owned seven rental units at one point with over 20 different tenants living there. It requires constant work. It's something that you always have your phone, that you always have to answer, uh, unless you want to pay like a management company a bunch of money to do it. And most of the time they can't fix a lot of the problems. So you're dealing with a second job there. And I can give you a lot of examples of this. I mean, one of the, there's so many stories. One of them my dad told me about recently where this is a, he was on vacation at the time, right? And he got a call. It was from one of his tenants. It's a married couple living in one of the units. And uh, the wife of the married couple was like in an absolute panic. She was saying that they were getting uh, poison, carbon monoxide poisoning. And my dad didn't know what to make of it. He didn't think that he didn't think that that was even possible because he didn't have a gas stove or a gas furnace. It was an electric radiant heater. So he didn't know where carbon could possibly come from, but you know, there might be something else causing it. So just being conservative, how he is, just to totally make sure that he can't be doing anything that could harm his tenants. He went and paid for them to have a hotel for the night for the next two days while he was on vacation. And he had to deal with that while on vacation, booking a hotel, which was at the same time that there was a local event going on. So all the hotel rooms around the whole area were totally booked. So it took him forever. He had to pay like double the standard rate to, to put these tenants into a hotel for a couple of days. And then when he got back, Of course, he put up a bunch of different really high quality carbon monoxide detectors and they found nothing. So all of that was a waste. The money was wasted. The tenants never paid him back for that. And uh, and then afterwards, the husband of the wife that was living there said, oh, that's, you know, she actually does this a lot where she'll like freak out about something. Right. So he's had to deal with this type of thing a lot. Now, this is just that's a small thing. But this type of thing happens all the time when you have tenants, especially if you have a lot of them. You're going to be dealing with people. People are oftentimes very needy, and you don't have to deal with any of that when you have a dividend portfolio. So that is a major difference between the two. I know I could make a higher return on my investment um, if I went out and bought real estate. But I also know that I'm going to be spending much more time. You're dealing with signing contracts. You're dealing with people, all their needs. You're dealing with things breaking. You have to go fix it. You're on call all the time. That's what happens is uh, you become on call all the time. Yes, I would like to do it eventually down the road. Uh, I definitely think that you can get a higher return. Um, Maybe if you want that to be a thing that you're doing, you're ready to take on that responsibility, then go for it. Just know it's not the same as owning a dividend growth portfolio. Okay, so I'll do one last question. This one says, hey, Joseph, Jonathan here. Thank you for your YouTube channel. I have a question if you don't mind. I have 25000 in the bank and I would like to invest in. I'm all in for your dividend growth strategy. However, all stocks in the market now are at all-time highs. So I'm not sure whether I should hold cash or wait for things to pull back to go in. But also, I know that time in the market is more important than timing since we're long-term focused. Do you think I should just buy now? Also, since things are at an all-time high, although we're doing long-term investing, is there a need for a stop loss? Really appreciate your time and looking forward. Cheers, Jonathan. All right, Jonathan. So that's a good question there. First of all, good job on saving up 25000 That's no small amount of money. Uh, if I had that sitting on the sidelines now, I don't think that I would just invest all of it immediately. I don't think I'd do a buy order tomorrow for 25000 And the reason why is because we are over 10 years into this bull market now. We're seeing some indicators of a slowing global market and some some things are slowing down a little bit. There's a couple options of what you can do. The first thing is I don't see... 
the market being an all-time high is a really thing that you should be cautious about. In fact, I'll go over here and look at this graph. Right here, here's a graph. This is a log scale of the S&P 500 since the 1950s. You can see the red highlights every single time the S&P 500 has hit an all-time high. And I mean, that's half the stock market. Every time that it grows past what it previously has been at, that's an all-time high. And half this entire timeline, it's been at an all-time high. So it being at an all-time high now only makes sense. Really, if you even look at that phrase, all-time high, it's pretty dumb. I mean, the media tries to sell it as this big accomplishment. But what happens is we're a world that's continually innovating. We have capitalism and there's lots of economies. And as those economies grow and expand with different populations, so should the stock market. So the fact that it's at an all-time high should be expected. shouldn't be a surprising thing or a flashy news item. As economies grow over time, same with the stock market, it should be continually hitting all-time highs. So that just makes sense. That's the first thing. I wouldn't really be worried about that indicator specifically. For your case, I would recommend doing a conservative portfolio, one that you could hold in a bear market, and dollar cost averaging into it. So I'd take a little bit of your 25000 maybe 2000 or so, put it in every month or so, and just start building up a portfolio as you see companies with good deals and just working it that way. That's what I would do. Some people might just throw it all in. It depends on your personal situation. Do you have a lot of savings? Do you have a really resilient job? There's a lot of risk factors here that you got to look into as well. So if you have a lot of other savings beyond this, you might just throw all of that in. But I personally would probably feed into it a little bit slower. Anyway, I will end it there, guys. I'll have another video out for you soon. I think it'll be a pretty informative one. So go ahead and throw me a subscribe. Throw me a like if you haven't already. I appreciate you guys a lot that go out and spread this channel. So thanks a lot for doing that. I'll see you guys next time.